0: Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, former Labor Secretary Robert Reich is famously small in stature and has a penchant for short jokes about himself, but he has big ideas about democracy, patriotism, work, leadership, and the American experiment.
1: I tell my students all the time, I say, if you really want to learn anything you've got to talk to people who disagree with you that's the best way of learning and the problem now is we're not talking to people who disagree with us so we are not learning
0: reich teaches public policy now at the university of california berkeley he is a best-selling author his latest work is the common good the book explores american ideals and the responsibilities of citizenship. He also co-created the films Saving Capitalism and Inequality for All. Robert Reich spoke at Seattle's First Baptist Church on March 5th as part of Town Hall Seattle's Civics series. KUOW's Jenny Cecil Moore recorded the event. Here, Town Hall Seattle's Edward Wolcher introduces Robert Reich.
2: Robert Reich is Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley. He has served in three national administrations, has written 15 books, including The Work of Nations, which was translated into 22 languages, and the bestsellers Saving Capitalism, Supercapitalism, and Locked in the Cabinet. His articles have appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. He is the co-creator of the award-winning film Inequality for All, is the chair of the National Government Board of Common Cause. His book, Saving Capitalism, was adapted into a documentary that you can stream on Netflix, and he is a master of many media, including uh, a very prolific Facebook Live uh, page that is one of the bastions of sanity in a social media ecosystem. Uh, And that is a uh, a good plug for the fact that Town Hall is recording and streaming this event ourselves tonight. If you're a fan of Robert Reich's common sense, powerful presentations to the camera, you should be checking out Town Hall's media library. You can see all of our archived events on our website, and please follow us in all those same social media places. But he's here tonight to discuss his new book, The Common Good, what a great title, The, the subject of tonight's talk. Please join me in welcoming Secretary Robert Reich.
1: As you can see, Donald Trump has worn me down. (laughs) Look, say what you want about Trump. He has at least got us back to first principles, right? I mean, Ronald Reagan got us talking about the size of government, And Bill Clinton, remember, got us talking about individual responsibility and opportunity. And Donald Trump has got us talking about some very basic issues like tyranny and democracy. (laughs) You know, I wrote the book, uh, The Common Good, because I was motivated in ways that many of you are. Uh, You see, Human nature being what it is, we often don't appreciate what we have until we are in danger of losing it. And as I talk to people around the country and have over the last year, year and a half, I've been impressed by how many people have said, you know, I'm so struck by how fragile our democracy is how much we need to be vigilant about what we have. People are, if you haven't noticed, stressed. Just coming into the airport, CTAC this morning, uh, a a person I had no idea who she was, very, very nice woman, um, she came up to me uh, and she said, what are we going to do? <laughs> you know, it may be because I'm, I'm slightly... Uh, I stand out a little bit from crowds, but a lot of people do come up to me in airports and say things, and I don't know them. <laughs> uh, last week, I, I started this book tour, and somebody in a JFK Airport, uh, who I don't know, it's airports, it's interesting, Uh, And they came up, this person came up and said, uh, He said, Where will it end? (laughs) Now I want you to put yourself in my place. Somebody comes up to you and says, You don't know, what are we going to do? Or where will it end? Or what's next? Or did you ever see anything like this? I mean, you, you, you start having a certain attitude after a while. You start, it's like a free floating focus group. There is some tension out there. And so I wrote the book because I was reflecting upon this increasing awareness of what we are in danger of losing. Now, let me also say Donald Trump is not the cause. Donald Trump is the, perhaps the culmination, maybe the consequence, but this started many, many years ago. In fact, one reason that Donald Trump became president uh, is because so many people for so long have been so frustrated and so angry and so upset. A couple of years ago, uh, before the 2016 election, I was actually in red states. I was going around on a project I was working on, and we were going from red state to red state to red state, Uh, and I was talking to people about uh, politics, economics, what their lives were like, and, and I kept on running into people. Now, this is 2015. This is just when the election is starting to get moving, and when pundits in Washington were saying that the two candidates were going to be Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush, and there was no question about it. And yet, everybody I talked with in Cincinnati and in the middle of Missouri and in, the, uh, in Michigan and all kinds of rural areas, I kept on hearing people say, you know, I'm trying to decide between this fellow Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, what? I mean, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, they're, not, they're on different planets. How can you be thinking that you are trying to struggle to make a, a kind of decision between these two? And the response I got in these red states was really similar to a response I began hearing all over America, and that is, we've got to shake things up. We're not being listened to. Nobody hears us anymore. Now for the last 35 years, the median wage, that is, when I say median wage, I'm talking about the wages right in the middle, half above, half below. It's not average. You know the difference between median and average. Shaquille O'Neal, the basketball player, and I have an average height of six foot two. That's. <laughs> You see the problem, the, the, the people at the top bring up the average and, but the median is a better measure because it's half above, half below. The median wage for the past 35 years has gone almost nowhere if you adjust for inflation. Now This is extraordinary when you realize that for the 30 years before that everybody's wages were going up. In fact, if you were in the bottom 20%, your wage was going up faster than the people in the top fifth. So, what happened, and why did it happen? And people started to get very angry and very upset. I remember, uh, well, maybe I should start by telling you a little a little bit more, a little a little autobiography, because I, in 1967, I got a job as well, in Robert. F. Kennedy's Senate office. I was an intern in Robert F. Kennedy's Senate office in 67 and I was very motivated and very excited to be there. Seven years before some of you, I'm just eyeballing you, some of you may remember, looks like you do remember, some of you, (laughs) uh, John F. Kennedy saying ask not what you can do for what America can do for you but what you can do for America. That was, that was that was the kind of quintessence of that era, of, of the, the notion that there was obviously a common good. I mean, we were not achieving it by it, but it was, there was a set of ideals, and we knew we owed the country something. There was a lot of discussion about what we owed each other as members of the same society. So seven years later, when I was ready to be an intern, a college intern, I thought I'd do my little bit, and I went to work for his brother in Washington, and I was assigned to to Robert F. Kennedy's signature machine. (laughs) That was doing what I could for America. And I don't know, uh, again, maybe you don't remember this or didn't know this, but, but in those days uh, every senator had a signature machine uh, with a pen at the end and a long wooden arm connected to a little motor and if you were running the signature machine your challenge was to get all the letters that had been typed on the stationery of Senator whatever, and line it up perfectly so that when the signature machine was on, the signature would be perfectly aligned where it should be. And so after two or three months of this, I became very proficient, but I was getting... Well, I was proficient at this. I I was good at it. I was a skilled signature machine (laughs) liner-upper. But I was getting bored. I mean, I, I hate to say it, I was... I was doing what I could for America but I was getting bored and I finally decided the way that I was going to avoid boredom was I snuck into Senator Robert F. Kennedy's office at night and typed up letters to my friends. (laughs) Dear Mr. Dworkin, congratulations on having the largest Knows in New York State, Robert (laughs) F. Kennedy. You know, they still have, my friends still have framed these. And then one day, uh, after about two, two and a half months into this job, Robert F. Kennedy came out of the elevator, where I just happened to be, in the hallway of the Senate office building. And he was surrounded by his aides, and they were chattering about interesting, important public policy issues and political issues. And I just was, 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 was floored. I hadn't actually seen Robert F. Kennedy for two months. I had been there. Uh, but he turned and he looked at me and he said, how's the summer going, Bob? <laughs> Bob. <laughs> that was me. He knew my name. Senator Robert F. Kennedy knew my name. And if he had asked me to run his signature machine for another six months, I would have. Six years, I would have. (laughs) I was so inspired. Those were pretty good years. Uh, Now, 68 was a bad year. Some of you may remember what happened in 68. Anybody who thinks we're in trouble now doesn't remember how bad things were in 1968. But I bring up the 60s just to refresh your recollection about something. Because as good and as bad as they were, we were all immersed in the question of what is the common good? What are we here for? What is the purpose of America? What is the identity? Where are we going? Bill Clinton was born in 1946. I was born in 1946. George W. Bush was born in 1946. Ken Starr, remember him? He was born in 1946. Donald Trump was born in 1946. Dolly Parton was born in 1946. (laughs) Cher, I mean, anybody who is anybody was born in 1946. Now I say this, I say this, this is important, this is part of the theme, because you see my father, uh, demographers always wanting to know why the baby boom began in 1946. It was not that complicated. (laughs) My father and the father of all of these other people, the fathers, they were off serving at World War II. And my father came home. And there was my mother. (laughs) You see, it's not complicated, it really isn't. But there is a lot of talk, and I think it's accurate talk about the greatest generation, but it was not so much that they were great generation, but what I remember of that generation is that they had gone through a Great Depression. They had gone through World War II, and by the time I was growing up, and Bill Clinton was growing up, and George W. Bush, and little Donald Trump, and all of us were growing up, and Dolly Parton, by the time we were growing up, we were imbued with their sense. I, I'll take Donald Trump out of this. They, we were imbued, with, because I don't know what Fred Trump was imbued with, but they were imbued, they were imbued with a sense, this other generation, of our interdependence, our interdependence. Once you go through a depression and a war, you know that we are interdependent. And so by the 50s and 60s, we were still living with that. And we knew we had ideals and even before the Vietnam War, Lyndon Johnson was, he was trying to get past the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act because we had ideals about what we should be as a nation. It wasn't that we were there, but we were striving for those ideals. And those of us who protested against the Vietnam War, we protested because of those ideals. And when Watergate happened, We were upset and angry and mortified, and and we were amazed because a lot of those ideals were shattered. How could could Richard Nixon have broken faith with a country in that way? Now, in 1963, 71% of Americans said to the Gallup poll organization. Yes, to the question, do you think government does the right thing all or most of the time? 71% of Americans in 1963 said, yes, government does the right thing all or most of the time. And then Watergate and Vietnam, and then Iran-Contra, And then, and then, and then, all the way down through the Wall Street bailout. You see, there's reason that even before Donald Trump became president, only 16% of Americans answered the question, yes. From 71% in 1963 to 16% in 2016, before Donald Trump became president. And so when I'm going around the country and people are saying to me, we need to shake things up, one thing they're also saying, trying to decide between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, is the game is rigged. I heard that over and over again. The game is rigged against me. What does that mean? It means that people had a sense that the elites, whoever they were, the establishment, whoever they were, they were doing fine. In fact, they were using their increased riches and money to get whatever they needed, whatever they wanted, to bend the rules, to flood government with money, but I was being left behind. You know, I was there in the 1990s. If anybody's responsible for some of this, I feel some degree of responsibility. I was in Bill Clinton's cabinet. I had met him in graduate school. We had been at Oxford together. We did not inhale together at Oxford. (laughs) And then we were at Yale Law School. People don't realize this, but Hillary Rodham, and Bill Clinton, and Clarence Thomas and I were in the same classroom at Yale Law School. And I'll tell you, you know the Socratic method at law school where they ask questions and you put up your hand to answer them, the law professors, Uh, Hillary's hand was always the first in the air, and when she was called on she always had the exact right answer, perfectly stated, eloquently delivered, My hand was up maybe a third of the time, and when I was called on, I sort of got it mostly right. Clarence Thomas never said a word. (laughs) And Bill Clinton was never in class. (laughs) You see how these patterns develop early on. But we knew the times were, were changing in the sense that the disillusionment that I heard when I was secretary of labor, I'd go out, you know, other cabinet secretaries. When you're a cabinet secretary, you're secretary of commerce or treasury or the, certainly state department or whatever you are, uh, you tend to, when you went, make trips, you go to the capitals of the world. You go to Beijing or you go to Paris or London. I, as labor secretary, I went to Toledo or buffalo, buffalo, I don't remember you from buffalo, but I I, I would go out there and then I'd I'd listen to people, now this is mid-1990s, mid-90s, and this is after years of stagnant wages, but this is during the largest economic expansion, the longest economic expansion we have had and I'm out there in the late, mid, late 1990s, in the Rust Belt, and in Buffalo, and in some other places, and I hear the beginnings of what I would then hear again in 2014, 2015. That is, this, this kind of beginning of disillusionment. Why is it that we're working so hard and we're getting nowhere? We are frustrated, we are, We're worried, we're scared, we're being left behind. That was the mid-90s. That was in the midst of a huge economic expansion. You see, just connect the dots, and you see how things lead to a sense of desperation and loss and frustration and anxiety, a sense that the game is rigged And when you have that, a society is ripe for a demagogue to come along and blame them, whoever the them is. The them could be foreigners or Mexicans, the foreigners or immigrants or African-Americans or Muslims or anybody. The them, the scapegoating. This is not new in history. Or another way of saying this is that we have had racism in this country for 240, 250 years. It's not new. We've had xenophobia in this country. We've had isolationism. We've had this since the country's founding, but what we did not have is a broad sense that the elites The economic elites were in charge and forgetting everybody else. That's what allowed the demagogues to come and utilize that anger and frustration and channel it toward those targets of rage. I tell my students all the time at University of California, Berkeley, I say, if you really want to learn anything you've got to talk to people who disagree with you. That's the best way of learning. And the problem now is we're not talking to people who disagree with us. So we are not learning. That's exacerbating everything else. We're in our own little bubbles. I don't mean to suggest that Seattle is a bubble, heavens, no. Years ago, I went from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I had been teaching, and I got in my little Mini Cooper. This was in 12 years ago, 13 years ago. Mini Coopers were not very well known about, certainly not in the middle part of the country, and I, I decided to drive. I had a job in Berkeley, and I went from Cambridge, Massachusetts, to Berkeley, California. I, I discovered after 3,000 miles of driving, incidentally, uh, that I had driven back to Cambridge, Massachusetts without knowing it, because Berkeley is the same city as, as Cambridge, it's just, the weather is much better, but there's really, it's the same bubble. I just went from one bubble to another, a part of the same bubble, but in between I drove across America in my Mini Cooper. And I remember I was at a gas station in a gas line in Oklahoma City in my Mini Cooper, when some truckers came up and they tapped on my window. I lowered the window and they they said, what is this? (laughs) I said, it's a mini Cooper. They said, how does anybody fit in there? (laughs) Well, I got out and I stood up and I said, "No problem." <laughs> and then I said, "I'm from Massachusetts, and everybody in Massachusetts is under five feet tall." <laughs> and they went off, kind of muttering to themselves. But, but you see, we're not—we we, are—we are living. They had their own bubble, and and I had my own bubble, and we're not learning. We're not learning from each other anymore. Washington has become. A city, a kind of a, a war zone. You know, I, I, I had been there, I had in and out of Washington for 40 years, 50 years, actually 50 years, and I have never seen it like this. People who don't talk to each other because they're either Republicans or Democrats. I mean, it was starting to get this way in the 1990s uh, but just beginning, I remember I had a very, very good friend. He's still a very dear, dear friend, Republican senator, and we really, we love each other. I, I can't explain exactly why, because we see eye to eye on nothing. He's six foot seven, Alan Simpson. Do you know Alan Simpson? He's very tall, and we literally see eye to eye on nothing. <laughs> but even in the 1990s, in order to see each other, I had to tell my staff, well, my staff, said, where are you going for lunch? I said, I'm going to have lunch with Senator Alan Simpson. And they said, no, you can't do that. Why? I said, because all of the Democratic senators would be upset you're having lunch with him instead of them. And it's not right. You can't do that. And then he apparently told me, he said to his staff, he was going to have lunch with me. And his staff said, you can't do that. He's, he's a secretary of labor in the Clinton administration. Can you imagine what people would say if they found out you were having lunch with him? And so, Alec Simpson and I had to sneak out. <laughs> it was like having an illicit affair. And we, we, we got together for lunch and we'd, we'd look around us, worried that we were being, gonna be, somebody was gonna take a photo. But that, it's much worse today it is much worse. And I think it's much worse because, in part, of the combination of factors I've given you. The stagnation of wages and anger and frustration. The channeling of that anger and stagnation and frustration into targets of hate and opprobrium and scapegoating. And thirdly, everybody in their own bubbles, not talking to each other. Can you see what a toxic mixture that is. And can you also see how readily we forget the common good in that toxicity? How far we've come from John F. Kennedy. Now people ask me, and I am gonna say just a few more things before I take your questions. They ask me, am I optimistic? And my answer is yes. Why am I optimistic? I'm optimistic because of those kids in Florida. The ability of those young teenagers to speak truth to power, to articulate values, to demand that adults act like adults. I'm optimistic also because I surround myself with young people between the ages of 18 and 22, and frankly, and it's not just Berkeley, but I lecture around the country in red states, and I have never come across a generation of young people more idealistic, more committed, more dedicated, more engaged with what is happening now. And I say to myself, it's a privilege to teach them. They will inherit this mess, and they will do something about it. I'm also optimistic because I look back on American history. I'm something of an historian. We are now in the second gilded age of America. The first gilded age was the 1880s and 1890s. Huge, huge gaps between a few at the top in terms of wealth and income and political power. There was corruption. The lackeys of the rich literally took sacks of money and deposited them on the desks of pliant legislators, there was extraordinary poverty, and a great deal of incendiary, incendiary racism and violence. Well, what did we do about that? As Karl Friedrich, the great political philosopher said, to be a Frenchman or to be a German or to be an Englishman is a fact. To be an American is an ideal. To be an American is an ideal. What did we do when our ideals got so far removed from the reality people lived in in that Gilded Age, that first Gilded Age? We snapped back. We created a progressive era starting in 1901 the most unlikely person, a vice president who nobody expected would do anything but William McKinley was assassinated and Teddy Roosevelt became president and he was a conduit. He was not just a leader, he was a conduit for a huge amount of progressive ideas and legislation, a graduated income tax and regulations and pure food and drug and all sorts of reforms including finally the franchise for women to vote. And then, years later, when his fifth cousin became president, that reform instinct and tradition continued. I think we will snap back again. We are resilient. And these ideals are powerful. And finally, let me just say a third source of my optimism. And it goes back to what I was saying at the very start. When I said to you, it's when we are in danger of losing something that we become sensitive and aware of what it was we had. Well, it is now, over the past year, that I have seen so many people in America who have never, ever been politically active become passionately politically active, people running for office who never would have thought about running for office at the local level, city council, school board, or at the state level, or the federal level, the number of people who are running right now. We have not seen anything like this in many, many, many decades. So there is a a silver lining to this dark cloud. I don't want to overestimate what's happening now, the positive aspects of what's happening now. I don't want to underestimate the challenge we all face. But there are reasons grounded in reality and history to be very optimistic. Thank you. And now, We have time for your questions, so if you just, um, please do come to this microphone to line up, come to that microphone to line up. Now I realize, as Edward said, that this is, after all, Seattle, and people have a lot to say. <laughs> but when you are tempted, or if you're tempted to make a speech, I would just fight the temptation <laughs> and ask me a question. So let's start with this gentleman. Thank you. And I'll repeat the question if anybody can't hear it. Thank you. Um, I was um, a few weeks ago giving a talk in Lopez Island, the most liberal county in Washington state, about how we should believe in our democracy. And I asked my audience of sixth graders, um, how would they describe our government? And one little boy raised his hand and said, corrupt. How do we instill in the next generation the belief in democracy if there are so many examples of our government being corrupt? Thank you. Well, I think the best thing to do is to read them and teach them history. I was talking this afternoon to the father of an eight-year-old about this very subject. And I asked him if he had taken his eight-year-old to Washington, not to visit the swamp part of Washington, but to visit the place that I visited when I was eight years old with my mother and my father, and that was the Lincoln Memorial. And to see that statue of Lincoln and to read the Gettysburg Address and to see etched in the wall the words, a government of the people, and by the people, and for the people shall not perish from this earth, it's that kind of thing. It's those ideals. The Declaration of Independence that states the most radical document that all men, people, are created equal at a time when that was the most amazing thing to say. The Constitution of the United States that says that we the people are coming together for the purpose, for the common purpose. It doesn't say we individual selfish jerks coming together to make as much money and as aggregate as much power as possible. No, it's we the people coming together. You look at the founding documents of America. Martin Luther King, the I Have a Dream speech, judging people, by the content of their character, rather than the color of their complexion, their skin. Give your children and your grandchildren American history. Yes?
3: My question is also is a bit of a history. And that is, how is it that Europe, um, in the last 30 or 40 years, have uh, various countries have enacted progressive, progressive legislation, social, environmental, and um, and we've gone in the other direction. Um, what's the uh, what's 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 the difference, sir?
1: Well, there are many differences between Europe and the United States, obviously, and some would say that Europe is now sliding backwards. Certainly, if you look at Brexit and you look at what's happening in Hungary right now, uh, you look at the rise of some very scary fascist, neo-fascist parties. Uh, You see, one of the big differences is we don't have a parliamentary system. We have a winner-take-all, two-party system. Well, a winner-take-all system becomes a two-party system, almost invariably. The founders understood this. There are advantages in not having a parliamentary system and there are disadvantages. One of the big advantages, according to the founders, was that a winner-take-all system might minimize the possibility, James Madison thought this, of factionalism. Of course, he didn't see ahead as far as he might. But nevertheless, uh, it makes it difficult for third parties to do things. It makes it also difficult to get the kind of swings of the pendulum from socialism, communism, all the way back to fascism, and then we don't do those kinds of swings here very well, hopefully. Yes?
2: There are eight local youth leaders who are leading a march, the March for Our Lives in Seattle here on March 24th at 10 a.m. at Cal Anderson Park. My question to you, sir, is this. Why is it important for everyone here to show up? (laughs) What does showing up accomplish, and are you going to show up?
1: I wasn't planning on showing up. I mean, I I haven't even thought about it, to tell you the truth. Uh, But what is showing up? I mean, showing up is, who said 90% of success. Woody Allen, somebody like that. But I, I think it was, it, was, it was in a derisive way. Uh, let me let me just say something. I don't know about the march, but I do want to say a, a more general point, and that is that demonstrating is extraordinarily important in terms of enabling people to know they're not alone. One of the great things about the Women's March right after the election is that people suddenly said, oh, we are a huge majority here, and when you look at the movements, not only the kids in Florida but also the Me Too movement, I mean women who suddenly understand that they are not alone, or the Black Lives Matter movement, or any of these movements become very important, and and, and the demonstrations that go along with them are vital reminders of social solidarity, but here's the big but, if we limit it to showing up, if we limit it to protests, if we don't turn that into practical politics, getting out the vote, we're getting nowhere.
4: I, I just wanna make some comments on things you mentioned. Uh, one of the things you mentioned was that Uh, We started to split with Nixon, and I'm going to say it's actually earlier. We started to split when Johnson signed the civil rights legislation. In fact, he actually said that, I understand. He said something like, we've lost the South now, because the South used to be democratic at that time, in fact. That's why Lincoln was a Republican, if you can imagine, everything swapped around. and I think that's beginning. Just a reminder
2: to get to the
4: question. Okay, that's the first piece. But it's okay? a good question. Okay, and so I want that discussed. And the other piece is that changed, started to change things for African Americans. But we never got the same thing for women because the ERA never went anywhere. It sort of died in place. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about both those things.
1: Let me start with the ERA. Uh, We still do not have equal rights, and we still do not even have equal pay for equal work in this country. Alone among industrial nations, advanced nations, we do not even have paid family leave. We're in the dark ages. Now, that's particularly remarkable, given that women are now so critical to our economy, to public policy. There are more women in college and university than there are men. Women are on the verge of, I think, if you follow the current trajectory, taking over America. (laughs) So it's only a question of when. It is a question of when. Uh, Now, the first part of your question was, we started to split under Johnson. Yes, Johnson did predict that the Civil Rights Act would cause the Southern Democrats to become Republicans. And he was absolutely right. And what Johnson did not say, but what he was thinking probably at the time, was that the famous Franklin D. Roosevelt coalition of blue-collar Northerners and Southern Democrats was really Southern whites. The New Deal excluded Southern blacks. The New Deal was built on the same racism that we had had in America all the time. But I think that if FDR were here, and if Lyndon Johnson were here to defend themselves, they would say, look, we take what we have and we push it as far as we possibly can. We organize, we mobilize, we try to do as well as we can
0: i share much of your optimism um, but do you fear that the party machine particularly in the democrats tom perez and others will prevent a force of nature like teddy roosevelt from
5: emerging
1: do i fear it do i fear that the democratic party will prevent a force of nature like teddy roosevelt from emerging Uh, i fear it a little bit every other day Uh, but you have to understand the Democratic Party, like the Republican Party, as parties, they are nothing. They are fun, giant fundraising machines. They have ossified. They are not the grassroots. You know, we used to have parties that actually had roots in communities and they had national, actually statewide conventions that everybody who was involved in politics was involved in. That's not the case in most states, and it's certainly not the case for the national parties. Tony Coelho, do you remember Tony Coelho? How many of you remember Tony Coelho? Tony Coelho, in the the 1980s, was head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and Tony Coelho decided the Democrats, who had already been in control of Congress forever, at least the House, would stay in control of the House, so why not go to the same sources of funding, big corporations and Wall Street, that Republicans were going to, because those sources of funding would do much better with the Democrats, since the Democrats would, and had been in control of the House forever. And so that was the beginning of the deal with the devil. That was the the bargain, Tony Coelho's bargain, that caused the Democrats to drink at the same trough as Republicans, or to change the metaphor slightly, the Democrats to become afraid to bite the hands that fed them and still feed them. So what do we do about it? Do we wait for the Democratic Party machinery, or if you're a Republican, the Republican Party machinery, to become wise and sensitive and thoughtful and... (laughs) No. We take it over. Now I don't mean to b- b- tar with such a broad brush because there are many Democratic officials who understand this. And by the way, if there are, some of you may be Republicans and I don't mean to in any way exclude you from this discussion and I want you to know that I respect you. I don't like you but I respect you. <laughs> No, I like you, and I respect you, and that's exactly what we're talking about here. Yes?
5: Are you worried about trends in automation? And if so, um, how can we help sort of transition and, and not have even more of these I'm left out, the elites have it?
1: Am I worried about trends in automation, artificial intelligence, and so on with regard to jobs? Driverless cars are going to destroy the teamsters. Yes, this whole business trucks. about yeah. globalization as being the major force that is displacing jobs, is completely off-base. The major force that is job displacing and is causing job displacement and will in the future, is technology. <laughs> and, but we must not be neo-Luddites and think that the answer there is to smash the machinery. That's not going to do anything. We've got to be ready. We've got to educate the public. And what does that mean? That means that there are certain issues that people need to understand. It's not that jobs will disappear, well, there will, jobs will disappear, but it's not that we will have less work. People will be working. They just won't be working in the jobs they have now, and if nothing is done, they're going to be working in jobs that pay substantially less. So, what then, what do we do? Well, one thing we can do is we can invest more and better in education, including technical education, but that's not going to do it. We've got to get serious about something called the universal basic income. A, just a, a minimum floor in terms of income. And then expand something called the Earned Income Tax Credit, which is a wage subsidy. All of this invented by Milton Friedman, conservative economics. But we need to at least lay the groundwork so people understand this is not welfare. This is a matter of maintaining aggregate demand and understanding the common good. Yes?
5: Do you think that like modern U.S. capitalism is good for pursuit of the common good or is it like a barrier for the pursuit of common good? Do I think that
1: modern U.S. capitalism is good for the common good Mm -hmm. or bad for the common good? I think that it depends on how it's organized. That is, every country in the world, even China, so-called communist China, is now based on two principles, private property and free exchange of goods and services. That's called capitalism. (laughs) But it can be organized in any number of ways. It can be organized in ways that provide a lot of public goods, really excellent public education and excellent public health and health care, the equivalent of a single payer for example, do you know what I mean by that? Um, Basically, Medicare for all, that public health, and it can be organized in ways that respect the environment. Mm -hmm. In other words, capitalism is neither good nor bad, it's how it's organized. And how it's organized depends on who has the power. And who has the power depends upon just what I've been saying tonight. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. How old are you, by the way? Fourteen. Great. Um, hi.
3: Um, I was one. So you worked in the president's cabinet for labor rights, correct?
1: I worked in the president's cabinet.
3: Yeah. Um, so what do you think is important about labor
1: rights and the equal pay? Uh, what do I think is important about labor rights and equal pay? Yeah. Everything. Uh, I think that the rights of people as workers to organize themselves into unions, to get a fair wage for their work, to get enough to live on, but also have work that's safe and healthy, to have opportunities to improve themselves at work, And I could go on and on. That's really where most of us live most of our lives. And if we don't have adequate regulations, we are not going to have a workforce that is thriving. 24% of American workers right now are self-employed, which is a fancy way of saying they have no labor protections at all. They are in the gig economy, which is a fancy way of saying They're on their own. Some of them like it that way. Many have no choice. And all of the labor protections that we enacted between 1935 and recently have no bearing on them. And their numbers are growing. That's point number one. Point number two, we are seeing more and more people who are working and poor. That should be an oxymoron. There should be no working poor in America. If you're working full-time, you should not be poor, but we're seeing more and more people who are working and poor, and we are seeing at the other end, a, not a huge number, but a sizable number of people who are not working at all. They are working age, and they are rich. So we're having the non-working poor and the, or the working poor and the non-working rich. That's not a good formula. Yes?
3: Um, I have a Master's Degree in Rehabilitation Counseling. And the reason I have that degree is because the Department of Labor set up Rehab Services Administration who set up programs in various universities to train people to work with the disabled, and a lot of people branched off from that to work with injured workers. So why is it that that population of counselors cannot be used to help all those people who need to be retrained?
1: You're asking me why?
3: I'm why, yes, why? Well, I
1: think they should be. But they they're should not. Be. Well, I think that they there should be. There are so
3: be. many people but, that but, need but, to but, be retrained I know, but there's so many. I, I
1: agree with you. <laughs> do you hear me? I do. And and it's frustrating to me. It's
3: very frustrating. Well,
1: it's frustrating to all of us. So how can we change
3: that? Well,
1: the question is, how can we change it by you and I and everybody else organizing and mobilizing and energizing and organizing ourselves to take back our government?
3: So all those people that are in the Rust Belt who are voting for Trump because they don't have a job, they could be retrained to do something.
1: Of course, they could.
3: And and better education.
1: Education is critically it's important. It's
3: totally critical.
1: Yeah. Well, I. Uh, but I. Do you understand where I'm coming from? I'm coming from where you're coming from.
3: No. So it's instead
1: just, of standing here and agreeing, let's get out there and get everybody something. else to be with us. Okay. No.
6: I found out you were going to be here this afternoon. I almost collapsed. <laughs> I always read anything by you, and I go wow, because I also have a degree in economics, best. Because of the made-off type thing, I'm like I couldn't. And when I listen to you in person, thank you, Town Seattle, for bringing him. You are the real deal. <laughs> My, I've been out of college for more than 20 years, but you are the second person this year that made me go, why didn't I do my PhD? Because it seems like when you have that, it gives you forum to say things. When I came to America, I had a lot of expectations, but I've met with a lot of disappointments. Because the question I have is, okay, people tend to listen to like who says what rather than what is being said. And when I go, where are you from? Instantly it's like, you're not one of us, you don't know anything. If one feels that way and you can't go into the politics, what will be the other, I mean, I can write, I can do research, I can do so, what will be the avenue to contribute Because I'm very, very passionate about the youth. I used to be in teaching. So how can one reach the youth or do something in a position without being political or without having the long leg to get to position?
1: So let me restate what I think you're asking. And that is, if you don't have this credential to be a college professor, let's say, Mm -hmm. and if you don't have the credential or the experience or the money or whatever you need to be a politician, then how do you make the contribution? And my answer... Did I get it? You got it. Okay. (laughs) My answer is that actually it's almost the inverse of what you have asked. That is, to me, the people who have contributed most in my life are not people who have the fancy credentials and they're not people who have spent their lives in politics there are people who are leaders by virtue of their commitment their authenticity and also their knowledge and wisdom and they what they do is they give to others that commitment that authenticity that knowledge and wisdom and that is their contribution and it is the most valuable contribution you can possibly make
6: sir I tried, but guess what? When people look at my resume, oh, you are too qualified. You are too qualified. Well, then don't
1: give them your resume.
6: (laughs) Then, how do I get the job?
1: Well, you just see, the thing is, the issue we often frame it as is how can I get that job? Yes, sir. But that's really, and I understand that. That's completely understandable. But if we follow our sense of calling, and here we are standing in the First Baptist Church.
6: Hallelujah.
1: Here we are. We're talking tonight about morality. We're talking about public morality, not private morality. I don't care what people do in their private bedrooms. We're talking about public morality, and we're talking about callings in the sense of what we can do for our fellow human beings. We don't have to have that particular job to do that for our fellow human beings. Do you understand what I'm saying? We can do that now, today, tonight, tomorrow. You're doing it already, I'm sure you are.
6: Actually, I've written to President, I've sent a letter to you, but in this year, too, I mean, I've worked in social services. I miss serving those clients and others. So I thank you, and I'm glad I see you in person. It's
7: like, why well, is this real? Thank you. <laughs> thank
1: you. Thank you.
7: Hi, thank you so much. Um, I've. Uh, been inspired by you often and don't think enough people think outside the box so I'm a doctor and I'm interested in health care not health insurance health care one thing that separates the Europeans from America is health care health
1: let me just repeat what you've said because I'm sure that there's a question
7: There is a question.
1: One thing that separates Europeans from Americans is health care, not health delivery, but health care. Health and you health. You said health with very strong emphasis on the word health. Yes. And very strong emphasis on the word care. Right. Health, care. Yes. And I hear you.
7: Okay. So the next step is if you know about medicine as I do you know that insatiable greed is a disease. And that when we talk about morality or honorability, we're talking to people who understand that from day one.
1: So let me make sure I understand what your question is.
7: I haven't asked it
1: Oh, you haven't asked her yet. No, I okay. have not asked her. OK, I'm but you, you, the... you do see if people are leaving there. I'm losing I'm sorry, my audience. i people have
7: been talking. I I... Have... Let me ask you. Yes. If we address health care, we have to go around the American Medical Association. That is impossible. I have tried to reach you to talk to you about this. How do I reach you? How do you reach me? where I am. Next step.
1: You're talking to me now. But let me, let me just say something to you. And that is, I, I suspect we agree. This is the only health system in the world that is designed to avoid sick people.
7: And to keep people sick, by the way.
1: And maybe to keep people sick. And greed, yes. I mean, the, the book that I came here to talk to you about, the common good is about the fact that over the last 40 years so much of our systems, that is our health system and our political system and our media system have succumbed to the disease of whatever it takes to make money or whatever it takes to gain power. And that was not always the case and it doesn't have to be the case. But until we overcome that disease, then we're not going to have a health care system that is genuinely based on health care.
7: No question, but we can't, people who are struggling can't get to talk to people about what is real health care. What is real health? Nobody talks about the, um, nobody uses the word mental illness for insatiable greed. Nobody realizes the misery of those people that make them the way they are. Thank you. Can I
5: talk to you?
1: You can, of course you can talk to me. That's what I thought we'd been doing. Yes.
5: So in your speech, you made a major point about the growing insularity and political tribalism in our communities. I've noticed this at my school, where I would see that perhaps at most, like one eighth of the students there would identify themselves as right-leaning. As such, when really we have any sort of political debate, it is pretty one-sided, as only one side is represented. So, how would you go about, like, how would, not, not how you, how would we, how should we go about, like, trying to see other perspectives and what steps could we take to de insulate ourselves uh, in this world we live in? Additionally, uh, you have advocated, at least during this speech, for universal basic income. So, I assume you mean for, like, a livable wage, for a livable wage. Uh, So how would you suggest we fund that? I I know you know more about this than I do, but, (laughs) I mean, uh, like how it seems like, at least to me, that it would take a considerable amount of funding in order to create a universal basic income program. And as a nation, we are already in a large amount of debt. So how would you suggest that we um, attain funding for these programs?
1: Okay, two points. One, you ask, how do we get funding for programs like Universal Basic Income or anything else we've talked about? And let me just say, this country is the richest country in the history of humankind, richer than we have ever been. We can afford to do almost whatever we want to do. The question is, who is we? If we are in the same common good, if people understand that we are interdependent, then those who have extraordinary fortunes will allow themselves to be, and I'm going to use a word that is very unpopular, taxed. Now, getting back to your first point. Your first point was, how do we, you in your school and others, how do you actually seek out people who disagree with you? One way of doing that is to respect and honor disagreement. That is, there are probably a lot of young people in your school who come from families, not a lot, there may be some, who come from families and who have attitudes and who have values and beliefs and, and facts that are maybe different, but they feel embarrassed or they feel marginalized or they feel that they can't really legitimately say what they believe. And so an environment has got to be created in which we honor and respect each other. And as the, there's, a, there's a wonderful man named Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was a professor at Harvard, and he was also a senator from New York State, and he once said, everybody is entitled to their own opinions, but they're not entitled to their own facts. (laughs) And so it means also arriving at some rules of the road about evidence, fact-based argument. And then there is eloquent listening. Do you know what I mean by eloquent listening? Okay. Eloquent, I'm, 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 uh, eloquent listening is the practice, and it takes practice, of listening to what somebody is saying that you may not like, and then repeating back to them what you've heard, so that you can make sure you've heard it, and they can make sure that you have actually acknowledged what they've said. And then opening yourself up to the possibility that you might be persuaded by them, just as you hope they open themselves to the possibility that they may be persuaded by you. I call that eloquent listening. We don't do that. We don't train ourselves to do that. We have got to start doing it. How old are you? Uh, 14. 14, another 14-year-old 14 here. Thank you. Well, this is, this is going to be the last question, so I would ask you that, Short. That this be a short question, but also you ask a question that allows me to provide an answer that embraces everything I've talked about tonight. <laughs>
4: well, that's a Summarizing great, in some grand and grandiloquent way <laughs> okay, every point. I came point. to the United States from the socialistic country. We had no volunteers and all factories, our institutions were non-profit. And what is your thought about volunteerism and about nonprofit organizations in the United States? I do work for nonprofit organizations and sometimes I have feeling like the government moved to responsibility from of taking care of people or different things on people who it's wonderful thing who organize. But I'm just curious what you see with So, what do I think about
1: nonprofits? non-profits you're asking. Yes. Well, I, I, I think that nonprofits are a vital part of our political economic system and structure, but I share your concern that nonprofits are being asked to take on responsibilities that are far beyond the capacities of nonprofits. The other thing that worries me about nonprofits is that if you have vast fortunes in the hands of a handful of people who can decide what they're going to subsidize because this is what they care about and they get tax deductions for those subsidies that is an equivalent in economic terms of a public subsidy, but it's an unaccountable public subsidy and so I worry about that too. We've got to have a Public sector, a government yeah. that is accountable to the people. Okay. And that's what I've tried to say tonight. <laughs> Thank, you.
2: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert Reich.
0: Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Robert Reich spoke at Seattle's First Baptist Church on March 5th as part of Town Hall Seattle's Civics Series. Thank you to KUOW's Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Stay current with us by subscribing to our podcast. Tune in again soon.